Another day, another deep dive into this weird world from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And when you examine the material that the crafters of the conventional worldview and scientific consensus cut out, things like remote viewing, astral travel, the value of altered states, auras, ether, orgone energy, alchemy, cross-dimensional life, the physics that support a hollow earth model, psi effects, manifestation, the power of intention, epigenetics, and even some things in the realm of biohacking and human optimization for cultivating strength, focus, and discipline, you come to find that there's much more magic and wonder in the world than they want you to know about and you're more powerful than they ever wanted you to realize. And the stories of the insightful experts across these fields, from alternative energy to psi, often hit all the same beats. They were painted as frauds, properly tarred and feathered through public humiliation, and sometimes even snuffed out in a desperate effort to keep control over the box in which we're allowed to think. Well, today's guest, Dan Zusoko, is a guy who is not satisfied with being told what to think about these outlier topics. He wanted to know firsthand. And through his YouTube channel, he's chronicled his research into a wide range of the sort of stuff we love around here, folded in personal experimentation, and fully embodied Terrence McKenna's famous line that if it's real, it can take the pressure. Coming in hot, all the way from Bulgaria, the strange stuff experimenter, hollow earth enthusiast, and mind magic magician, Dan, welcome to the higher side. Hey, Greg. It's glad to be here. And nice to meet you as well. Yes, nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. I have to agree with a ton of the comments I see on your channel, which express that your videos are much better than the view counts would suggest, but it is a process, and your channel is not that old. So I guess it started in 2019, but you've really only been making videos for like 10 months, you say. And I actually found you through a link about your Hollow Earth documentary. But as I got more into the channel, I realized there's so many wild things we can talk about from alchemy to moon mysteries, and we will just fit in what we can. But you say that you consider yourself a skeptic in the true sense that you don't just believe things, you want to investigate them, and your channel is sort of your journey in doing so. But you also seem to have some traditional scientific or mathematical background, as well as a lot of discipline when it comes to putting your body and mind through certain challenges, kind of like a Tim Ferriss of the alternative. To get us going here, talk a bit about your overall mission and approach to the things you look at on the channel in general. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that question because my channel initially started, well, I was into video games and it was a video game channel. And I was being told <laughs> by many of my viewers that I should do something much deeper and that I'm a good teacher and I'm very good at explaining things. At the time, I wasn't really, I didn't really believe them. But many of them started requesting other topics. And at some point, I decided to delete all my video game content because it's just a form of a distraction for the masses, although I quite enjoyed them. But I decided to go into something deeper. And I was always into research. I have somewhat of an engineering background as well as architecture, although I didn't finish my formal education because I switched to marketing. But I've been through a lot of mathematics. And what I always like to say is that if you really want to get into something and discover the truth, look at the numbers and look at the raw data. And from it, you can always calculate what's the truth. Because in media, we don't find raw data. We find conclusions that someone else has come to. 
And that's a very easy way to manipulate reality in the form of telling you what I think, not what you should come to by yourself. And that's why if I go deep into some conspiracy theory, the first thing I do is I look if there is a motive for it. And the second thing I do is calculate whether it's plausible. And that's what I did with the Hollow Earth. I decided to physically check if it's possible for it to actually exist or if it would collapse on itself. And even if it existed, would it be possible for someone to really live down there? What conditions there must exist in order to do that? And it's like that with many things, not just how it works, because you hear that our world is overpopulated, that it cannot sustain itself as well. But if you do the math, you will see that that's not the truth at all. And what you must do to reach that conclusion is just check how much land there is. And if you see how many people live and see what parts of this land is farmable, actually, you will come to the conclusion that it's not what they make it to seem. <laughs> yes, yes. So now it's all making sense. Marketing, because your thumbnails and titles are quite good. And the discrepancy between doing this for 10 months versus 2019 with the gaming channel, it's all starting to make sense. The engineering background, because you don't talk about yourself too much. You talk about the material, which is the way I do it too. But it's nice to get a little background on someone people aren't too familiar with. But yes, the conspiratorial math, you're doing it on so many different subjects. And we have done episodes about the Hollow Earth before. It's a big interest of mine. Your 40-ish minute breakdown of the Hollow Earth is really great. You propose an interesting timeline of events in it where you say the military accidentally leaked the polar openings in 1957. Then in 1958, NASA was created to convince people to look up and out rather than down and in. And then only one year after that, in 1959, the Antarctic Treaty was signed between all the major countries, and that was also the year they added the Molten Core model into the standard national school curriculum. I really like the picture you paint with this sequence of events, but let's go back to that first point. How did the military accidentally leak the truth in 1957? Well, when it comes to the military, you can never know if something is accidental or not especially when it comes to counterintelligence, when it comes to wars, the Cold War as well. That's why I also, I will go off topic here a bit for one minute, but I have a short video that hypothesizes whether the moon landing was fake, not just to fake the moon landing, but actually to win the Cold War and to stop all the resources from being spent in vain. And this is the same because this year you're mentioning it is right after World War II. It's been 10 years after, and the Cold War is already beginning. So you need to have something to tell the others that you're strong. And by signing the Antarctic Treaty, if you want to force other countries into signing a treaty, there must be some motive to do it. And there must be a way to leverage the situation in your favor so you can make them sign it. Because this is international territory we're speaking about. And if you want to stop anyone from going there, you cannot claim it for yourself that easily because there are other major powers in play and they can stop you from doing so. But if you somehow unite with other countries to do that, you can do it much more easily. And this is my theory that this was leaked intentionally 
just to have other countries fearing from what would happen if the general public discovers something. I'm not saying I believe in this theory 100%, but it sounds plausible to me that something like that might happen. And when you think about it, that you said, we actually study in school about the molten core. It hasn't even been 100 years since the molten core has been, quote unquote, discovered. We're not sure if it exists. This is just a theory that occurred in 1936 to a woman that is studying seismology. And she at first wasn't really sure what is down there in the middle of the earth. And people just thought to themselves, it's something else, and it's something dynamic in nature, and it's probably a molten iron core because we have a magnetic field, right? But stars also have magnetic fields. And differentiating between the two without actually doing any calculations is very hard. And nobody did these calculations. And if you download the actual file, the white paper they did and read it, there aren't any calculations proving there's a molten core down there. So that got me thinking, can I calculate if a star could exist within our planet instead? Because there are many records of people thinking in this direction, that stars, miniature stars, could exist within planets. So I decided to do that. And I don't have an extensive physics background. I have studied physics in university for a couple of semesters, but I could easily obtain the formulas I needed. And I think my math knowledge is somewhat accurate. So I decided to calculate if it is possible to have a star in our Earth. And there's actually someone else who had done that before. And it's, excuse my pronunciation, I'm not a native English speaker, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's Euler or Euler. I would say Euler, but Leonhard Euler. But I might be wrong too. But yeah, this guy, brilliant mathematician, the guy who basically gave us the pi symbol and a few other mathematical staples that we all know. Yeah, he was a close friend with Newton as well. And he often shared his research and studies with him. And the two of them would sit together and ponder the mysteries of the universe. And both of them were also alchemists. Like you said, that your viewers and listeners are interested in alchemy as well. So he thought that according to his calculations, there was a 600-mile diameter star, let's say, inside of Earth. And so many people, that would seem entirely crazy, but if you think about it, based on all the data we have, the molten core, the supposed molten core inside Earth, it has the exact same temperature of our sun, the temperature of the surface. So if these two are so identical in nature, why wouldn't there be a star there? This was the first thought that came to my mind. And then I went searching for actual stories that would back this up and to see roughly what the temperature there was based on eyewitnesses and accounts as in books. Because I can easily calculate the temperature that we would have inside the Earth if we have a 600-mile diameter star inside of Earth. That's not very hard to calculate. And what I found out is that in most books related to how it works, the temperature there is 23.5 degrees Celsius. In Fahrenheit, I'm not sure how much that is. I can check and tell your listeners. <laughs> well, your video, when you talked about temperatures, there's a, there's a core temperature, a surface temperature, the ambient temperature inside the Earth. And when it comes to the temperature inside the Earth that the inner sun 
would produce, you say it's about 75, which is, you know, what I hear. 75 degrees Fahrenheit. It's like San Diego all the time. My old stomping grounds. But there's no night, which is a weird thing for circadian rhythms and that sort of thing. But there are legends of a time where there was perpetual twilight. It's often described as something on the surface because of the whole electric universe model you might be familiar with, where some people think that Saturn was the original star and we were in a plasma envelope. It's quite weird. I'm sure you've given all the things you've looked at. I'm sure you're a little familiar with the electric universe, but these stories might actually be about cultures inside the earth well the electric universe i didn't go that deep into it because it seemed like a deeper rabbit hole and i was focused on doing a simpler form of video that would be more focused going with the electric universe to the become a two-hour video instead yeah yeah that's a whole separate thing for sure but you do say with uh, euler's proposed inner star of 600 miles well Let's work that out because we know the circumference of the Earth is about 25,000 miles or 40,000 kilometers. It's about 4,000 miles or 6,400 kilometers to the center of the Earth. So when you do the math, it seems like there is enough room for an inner sun and then for there to be an atmosphere and then for there to be an inner surface. And another interesting detail is that the deepest earthquakes that we have happen at 450 miles down, which you say perfectly coincides with the distance that all the stories say is the path length from surface to inner cavity. So that's odd. We have these stories and legends, and we might write them off as myths, but when they contain details that actually jive with the real configuration here, then you have to scratch your head and give it a second thought. Yeah, when you think about earthquakes, not only earthquakes, but also lava and magma, volcanoes, nothing of these occurrences and events and natural disasters, they don't happen deep into our earth. They happen, like you said, 400 miles or a bit deeper, but nothing too extraordinary. So... Actually, if you think about it, if we have an inner core that is molten and it's that high in temperature, and on Earth, there are just two elements that can actually withstand such a high temperature, and you wouldn't find them almost anywhere. So we've studied how gravity works, more or less. We have a vague understanding of it. And if Earth is one whole, one whole object, a piece of mass that's consistent, and there are no cavities in it at all, like large cavities, like in a whole earth, then it will collapse on itself under the heat and gravity of this molten core, because at its most densest part, it would pull everything together inside it. And if it's that hot, everything would collapse and burn to the ground, absolutely become a molten lava ball that would float in outer space. And this is practically not very far. I mean, if someone has studied physics up to the 7th or 8th grade and they start thinking about this theory, pieces would come together. And what our governments did and put that into the school curriculum, I think is good. I will do the same, to be fair. Although I look into conspiracies, I think the general public should have, we should minimize the panic among the general public, because if they think there's something safe under 
our feet and they know for sure some iron bull or whatever. They just need to know. So they don't have any concern about their future or their past. But yeah, a star could definitely fit into Earth. And if you stand on that other side, inside Earth, then if you look at the star, it would be around the size of the moon or a bit bigger, probably. If it's bigger, it would be twice as big, not something spectacular. And that's because you have a distance of around between, depending on how deep the Earth's crust is and mantle, we don't know. We actually don't know about this. Probably we will never know because the deepest we've dug is around 20 kilometers, which is a bit more than 12 miles. And there is no way to take that deep into Earth and to discover how deep our mantle is. The only thing we can do is to study seismic waves and with the help of seismic waves to discover when the mediums through which these waves travel change. Nothing else. We cannot guess what they are. We can only discover their approximate density in correlation with each other. But if you don't know what two things are and both of them are mystery to you, and you know the correlation between their densities, you can never say what these two things are because you have too many questions to answer and not enough solid proof. But talking about seismic waves, you have two types of waves that I mentioned in my video. I've actually studied geodesy and geology for two semesters, but I wouldn't have it as a strong point in my resume. It's not something I'm proud of. <laughs> uh, when you think about it, this is very difficult to explain without images. So I would say the people listening now to check both seismic waves S and P type so they can have a better picture of how these work. But practically, both of these are observed during earthquakes and P waves can travel through almost anything but change direction depending on the medium they travel through, while S waves cannot travel through atmosphere. They cannot travel through gases. So if you have an Earth, that has a hollow pocket in the middle, S-waves would not pass through this pocket. They would go around it and travel only through the solid ground that surrounds it. And this is exactly what happens. If you check how S-waves pass through our Earth, you will see this. And in the beginning, the woman that discovered this, she didn't know that S-waves couldn't pass through atmosphere and she thought they just don't pass through something very dense. But later on, they discovered P waves, and these waves, they actually seek the path of least resistance. And that's why they do not go through the core, because it's very dense, and the least resistance is through other mediums. And that's exactly how we know that there is something solid down there, but we don't know what it is, unless we actually go there. Right, right. We have talked about the seismic data before that when waves are tracked through the Earth, they do stop or they have this gap, as you say, don't travel through atmosphere. And if we had an iron or molten core and everything was just solid, they would travel right on through. But if there's an empty space of air, then that explains why our ability to track these waves stops at a certain point and then I guess continues on the other side or there's just this gap where we don't get any readings. And you also mentioned wind patterns, and this is an interesting way to go about it because I hadn't heard anyone break this down, but what do wind patterns show near the polar areas? 
Oh, this is quite interesting because when I was looking for evidence, I didn't find a lot of info about this one. But then I went deep, deep into Reddit and I found a post of someone saying that he found a map, but it was constantly changing. So I dug deeper and I found actual reliable wind maps that we can use that were not modified because usually everything you find around the poles is very censored or modified heavily. Everyone can go on Google Maps and just click on North or South Pole. You will see one huge square or piece of censored land that you won't be able to see anything. And the public opinion on that one, what is shared through Wikipedia and the media is that there's military operations going there, the censored because of national security, etc. And also, nobody passes around the polls. Pilots don't pass around the polls. But the wind maps, yeah, I decided to check those. And what I found is that around the poles, and we're talking about the geographical poles, not the North Pole or the South Pole. Not the magnetic pole, but the actual physical. Yeah. And you would find there there is a lot of disturbance in the winds. They would form a kind of a vortex, almost. Well, wind, as many of the listeners might know, are formed because there are differences in temperature in the atmosphere. So when you have a large difference in two areas that are nearby, you would get higher winds. And these differences occur mostly because of geographical terrain. So if you have a high mountain and next to it you have a very low valley, you would always have wind. And during the night, when the temperature cools down, you would have a stronger wind, but it is always going down from the mountain below. And depending on the temperature changes, you have different wind patterns. And what we see around the poles is that, especially at night, you see these vortexes go down because that means there's a lower ground down there. Or I'm not sure if it's ground, it can be something else, but there's something lower. And that's how they dive deep into a hole or a vortex or something that's not easy to explain. And I was thinking very skeptically about this. To be fair, I'll be honest here. I started this documentary not believing at all in this theory. I just was doing my research. I was doing it for the sake of entertainment. But midway, I was somewhat convinced that this is actually possible. This is one of these theories that nobody can come and just tell you, hey, man, you're crazy. This is impossible. You can actually tell them these things, and they will not be able to fight you with some scientific argument. Probably they can pull something out of somewhere, <laughs> but it won't be very reliable to find it. And the biggest argument I've heard against this theory is that how would people going down there would be on the opposite side of us? Like, imagine you're on one part of the earth, on one side, and another person is on the other side, but they're facing downwards because of gravity. So how would that work? Well, there's actually a theory in physics that proves this is entirely possible. And if you go into, I believe in English, it's called toroid, toroid shapes. It's a donut size, donut form that you can observe. You can read about these in Wikipedia. There's nothing concealed there because there is no conspiracy there. You can easily read about them and how they work. And this is another of my approaches toward conspiracies. In Wikipedia, if you write pseudoscience, there's a large, large list of pseudosciences labeled by Wikipedia. And I'm testing them one by one with empirical evidence to see if there is actually something that is pseudoscience. 
And most of them actually work. It's orgone you've mentioned, the alchemical ways. There's also this, the power of form as well. You know how forms, the pyramids, they have their own power. I've made a video about organ pyramids, but even if you don't create it as with organites, you can create a pyramid form and it would affect anything below it or around it. And you can easily test this. And dowsers as well. You have dowsers. You know what dowsers are, right? Yes. Yeah, I've worked with dowsers in discovering water and they're more than 90% correct. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It is a weird world. And in terms of the, the hollow earth, you also say in that documentary that there's over a thousand of the brightest astronomers, physicists, and mathematicians who were proponents of the hollow earth model before it was shut down and dismissed. And then today it's like, you don't even go there because of the ridicule factor. People just assume we know what we know. And I wanted to step back to this thing about the military accidentally leaking the truth in 1957. Are you referring to that footage that a lot of us have seen that looks like it's on a satellite or is it a document that they leaked? What was the actual thing? No, it's not an actual footage. It's just a photo of the North Pole. Gotcha. And you can see the polar opening. Yeah. And it was in the newspapers back then. There's plenty of archives you can browse. If you go to the archives of newspapers for 1958, I believe, or 57, it was. 57. Yeah. No, it was leaked in 57, but I'm not sure where the archive, these newspapers, which year it was, because usually sometimes they're messed up, the old ones. But you can check it yourself. It was published in the newspapers. There was some form of an outrage in, in the media as well. And it's bad because we cannot find these videos anymore. They're taken down. But yeah, it was a photo. It was not that footage because there's one weird footage going around and you can see a vortex of water going. I think this one is fake, to be fair. Because it would never, physically, it would not look like that. All the images you see on the internet the clickbaity vortex diving deep into the earth. For sure, it's physically impossible for this to look like this. If you go at the edge, let's call it an edge because it's not an edge, it's actually a big hole. But it's so big that you wouldn't know you're passing through anything. In your mind and with your eyes, you just see one flat surface like you see the earth right now. It's so huge that you wouldn't be able to perceive any difference. Right. And in terms of what's down there, there are obviously some really epic stories of advanced cultures and rumors that inside is where the UFOs really come from. And you note all the cultural myths about beings inside the earth, the Hindus, Tibetans, Greeks, and Native Americans all have this as part of their worldview. But tell us about some of your favorite references to some sort of advanced civilization on the inside surface. Well, I'll take you a bit back into the past, this question, and I like it very much. I'm sure most people are aware, not most people, but most people listening to this podcast are aware that everything is cyclical in civilization and civilizations come and go. And so we're not the first to reach an advanced state for sure. And before us, there were many others. There's plenty of evidence of this. There are buildings that we could never imagine to be able to build. And if we die today, 
in around 2000 years, there wouldn't be a trace left of us, probably a plastic bullet here and there, but in 10,000 years, we would never find anything related to humans at all. And these civilizations, we don't know who built these stuff. I recently visited the oldest town in Europe. I'm making a video about it. It's in Bulgaria. That's why I visited so quickly to make a video. It, one of them is Plovdiv and the other is Perpericon. And Perpericon is very strange. It's very strange because a radioactive piece of crystal that is very large, around 15 feet, was found there and was producing electricity. And it is around 8,000 years old. And it was stolen by the Russian military. So I decided to go and investigate. And it's very interesting how these people that built this place, we don't know who they are. And even official history says that we don't know who they are. At the beginning of the excavation, they thought it was built by Thracians. Later, Romans and Byzantines built there as well. But they had sewage 8,000 years ago, long before the Romans, and actually heated households with pipes and everything laid down. I took photos and videos of the pipes laid down through stone. They were cut with some form of a laser or something so precise. We cannot cut stone right now like this. What I'm trying to say here is that how would these people survive for hundreds of thousands of years for civilization to continue? And if something is cyclical, then probably someone survives. We know in the Bible the story of Noah, how he survived. But is it true? Do we know? Is it possible? Not only is it true, but is it possible to build, build an ark and survive a flood? I would say the chances are very slim. Even with advanced technology, it, the chances are very slim. It makes much more sense to go deep into it somewhere and hide, wait for the cataclysm to end and come back 200 years ago. Your children or your children's children, they can come back to the surface. And South America, even North America, Indians as well, all of their stories are how the world ends. And then someone comes from deep earth underground and tells them, guys, come over, we'll save you, come with us, join us in our caverns, and then you'll come back. They go and... 200 years later, they come back to the surface. It's unfortunate that these tribes never had any written languages because we would see this story coming up over and over again. But in Hindu as well, we see Nagas there and Nagas live underground and often they communicate with people and even save them on a couple of occurrences. So this makes total sense that if there are constant cataclysms and every 20,000 years or so, then there should be a way to survive and to preserve intelligent life. Because our current way of surviving, bunkers won't save you from this. If a major flood comes in, you will not survive with a bunker. The only thing we can currently do with our level of technology is go to a space station and wait. <laughs> and we don't have access to these. I'm talking about the Earth-changing events, like the Younger Dryas impact, like whatever supposedly killed the dinosaurs, because we don't know that for sure. But let's say that type of event or an ice age. And these things occur within cycles within 24, 25,000 years from what we've seen before in the past. And my theory is whoever survived this probably found a place deep into the earth and hid there. Whether it was how earth as a whole in the center of the planet, I don't know. It could have been an enormous cavern hundreds of miles deep down that wouldn't get flooded and destroyed. But I believe it's entirely possible. And about these civilizations, you said about UFOs, 
yeah, when you think about UFOs, this is a very strong point that somewhat helps us in our collection of evidence regarding our Earth. Because Earth is surrounded by a radiation belt called the Van Allen radiation belts. And if you think about it, with our current speed, it would take thousands of years to reach the nearest star. And even if someone travels with the speed of light, which is somewhat, let's say, impossible, they would reach from the nearest star to here in about four years. And no biological mass can withstand that speed, regardless of what they do. And I believe if aliens exist and they've visited us, which probably they have, they either reside deep within Earth for these reasons, because it's very hard to pass through radiation belts. These things are crazy. It's like visiting Chernobyl one week after the event. It's not something that you can withstand. And you can withstand it, but with a very, very heavy arc, let's say, that surrounds you and protects you. And these things cannot fly. The only way you can do this is build this in space, because in space you can build something very heavy and make it fly. No problem. The problem with spaceships is building them on the planet and then sending them through space because of the atmosphere. If they had ships like this that can pass through the radiation belts, these ships must have been built on a planet without an atmosphere or a space station. And then if they land here, they would never be able to come back home. They would never be able to leave. So if they reached here at some point, they reached with a space vessel that was built this way and it cannot leave, and they must find a place to hide. And I believe the safest place is within the Howard or in a cavern somewhere. Yeah, I like it. Well, as much as I love Hollow Earth stuff, let's move on to some other things like your video. According to the ancient Greek texts, people lived before the moon existed. I love that general concept. You mentioned Plutarch's Roman questions, and he references the Arcadians, the people before the moon, the pre-lunar people. But Native Americans also have a pre-moon myth. And you say, isn't that curious that both sides of the Atlantic have cultures that preserved a similar story as far out as it seems? Talk to us about your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, at first, you know, this comes also to what we study at school. Supposedly, the moon somehow, a large asteroid or something, hit Earth or a protoplanet, and both of these separated and the moon was formed. Well, according to mainstream science, it's almost as old as Earth, and the protoplanet that hit Earth was even older than Earth. But this doesn't sound right to me, and I decided to investigate, especially when I heard about these Proselenese people that lived before the moon, according to Greek texts. And... There's an eerie connection here because according to the texts, they lived on mountains and they ate acorns from acorn trees, from oak trees. And you know that Zeus is the god of acorn trees, of oak trees. Do you know that also Thor, one of the supreme gods, is also in Viking mythology, in Norse mythologies, he's also the god of oak trees. And another one, it's called Perkos. Perkos is one of the oldest gods. He's the oldest proto-European and Asian gods. And he's older than Thor. He's older than Zeus. It's believed that both of these gods are based on Perkos. Maybe you can write Perkinos on Wikipedia. You can read about them. But he is exactly identical to Zeus and Thor. 
he's much older. He's a Thracian god. And he's also a god of oak trees. And these people were believed to eat only acorns and live on mountains. And they believed in this god. And it's very strange because if you think about it, people to be living before the moon, how would they exist in the first place? Because what we know now is that the moon perfectly balances our planet in a way that it can sustain life. So I thought, if the moon really is one of the reasons we are alive, then how can it be so perfectly placed and so perfectly sized to influence our planet in such a way to preserve life and to nourish it? Isn't there some form of a intelligent design there? And I checked a lot of things. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it seems like the moon, if it would have been 5% off from where it is and 5% off in terms of size, in terms of mass, it wouldn't be here at all. And this turned one conspiracy into another, one theory into another. So I reached the conclusion that if people existed before the moon, for them to exist before the moon, isn't really possible. But why would these myths exist? Why would they be here? How would we hear about them and read them in ancient texts? I was thinking maybe these Persephone's people actually existed before the Ice Age, and the Younger Dryas impact occurred at around the end of the Ice Age. And I thought that maybe it was a common knowledge that while something impacts the Earth, volcanoes tend to erupt, sometimes supervolcanoes as well, this also changes the climate, it obscures the clouds, it obscures the sky. You cannot see the sun, the stars, you cannot see almost anything, you cannot see light. Day turns into night, climate disrupts, plants die. And I thought maybe during the last ice age, when this impact happened, maybe super volcanoes erupted as well, and it blocked the sun for a lot of years, for a long period. And when these clouds would disappear, people would probably labeled the ones before them as the people who existed before the moon. Well, <laughs> it was debunking this. I don't always support the conspiracies as I go into, of course, because I said I'm skeptic on many of them. But this led me to a bigger conspiracy that is probably the moon is not as it seems. It seems very perfect and almost nothing is perfect to this extent. Right. There is that quote that the only explanation for the moon is observational error. I forgot the scientists who pointed that out, but it's just a fun quote about the moon. And I liked your idea of maybe these people lived through the Younger Dryas impact and the sky was all smoke and ash and everything was obscured. But I would think that they would be referred to as a people who existed before the sky or before the stars. I mean, the constellations are a this big is, part uh, of... This is a very valid point. And there are several quotes that say the people that existed before the celestial objects were in the sky. It's not always before the moon. But in Greek, they are called the proselenes, which means practically before the moon. But you would never know. It can be an expression of sorts. It can be, but there is some slight chance, of course. People can always think about it and explore more. I haven't put a stamp on this one close, the point. So you're still open to the idea that an advanced race pulled the moon into its position before the human experiment started? 
Oh, of course, I'm always open to <laughs> I'm always open to suggestions. In my Discord, actually, there are very crazy ideas going around. <laughs> people from all over the world sharing, and I'm sometimes they ask me to censor people like, "What are they speaking about? How is this possible?" Especially when it goes to people speaking about these archons and the prison planet. My Discord members would go crazy and tell me, "Please silence them. We don't want to hear about it." I would keep them going on unless they are hurting others and forcing them into their views. It's a free place because there are not many free places on the internet, sadly. Um, you know how it is. Amen. I mean, who am I telling you? You're, you have to strike. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, also in that video, I was happy to see you talk about Crow's lunar wave phenomenon too. Crow and I were pretty close for a time. He's been on this show maybe a dozen or more times than he started his own podcast. And we just haven't talked as much since then. But either way... You say you've actually observed this yourself, but you think it's an atmospheric effect, not evidence of a moon hologram, right? Yes, but that doesn't mean that. I'm not saying it's an atmospheric event. I'm saying the hologram we might see could possibly affect the whole atmospheric view we have from Earth. So these are two different things. Because saying it's an atmospheric event would say probably... There's a wave of wind or a gust in the upper layers of the atmosphere that would make us see what we see, but that's not what I would initially deduce. I would say that it's either this or either the whole sky can be projected as a hologram. <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're getting yeah. out there. Yeah. So it's either one of these two things. Which one is more probable? I cannot say. But we've seen the sky we see for many, many years. And if it's a projection, it's an ancient projection for sure. It's not something recent. And why I'm saying it's possible is because of the other clip I shared. I haven't seen this one with my own eyes, though. But it was the same lunar wave you're talking about. There's a recording of this happening with Jupiter and two of its moons that are orbiting it. And you can see the wave pass through Jupiter, and then it passes through one of the moons and through the other moon as well in one direction. And in a uniform, with a uniform speed. So it for sure affects the whole atmosphere, not the moon itself only, because it's been observed on other celestial bodies. But I've seen it in this clip affect all of these at once. And it made me believe that it's something else and it's not related to the moon only. Right on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, some researchers, they discount the idea that space is a vacuum. They think it is a medium like an ether or almost something akin to water, not literal H2O, but some kind of fluid medium or ether. And could ether produce waves? It's possible. So might that be somewhat in the mix to explain what this is? I've heard about this before. What I can say to this is that if someone tries to calculate it, they would have to study the laws of buoyancy, which means usually when some form of some object is in water, if some object is in water and the volume of this object is actually the weight of the volume of this object that displaces the water, if it's less than the weight that would fit in this volume, if it was consisting of water, then it would float. This is how boats, if you want to make a boat, just make a big enough vessel that would displace a lot of water without it weighting too much, and it would float. And if it's some form of a liquid outside of Earth, 
then all of these planets for them to float and to be consistent, the volume of them should be the mass that would be calculated based on the volume they have and the density of the objects. It should be lighter than this liquid, uh, this medium. Otherwise, they would all sink somewhere. I don't know yeah. where, but they would sink. <laughs> well, I get what you're saying, but I don't know if we can extrapolate fluid dynamics or water dynamics to something like the ether, because that might be more like a atmosphere, for lack of a better term, some kind of etheric, you know, some kind of more airy medium rather than necessarily a liquid. But who knows? I just think that we we know very little about things outside of our atmosphere. But I just wanted to make this point. So you do note that the lunar wave phenomenon happens or is observed more often around solstices and eclipses. And maybe it's just easier to see for some reason. But when I was thinking about this as a potential atmospheric effect, I thought about ritual magic and the importance of timing. Maybe that's some observable aspect of this notion that magic works better during these same time periods, whether it's some kind of encapsulation to keep our consciousness within this container or the veil becomes thinner so our intentions can go out into the cosmos. I don't know, but I thought that was an interesting thread to pull on that magic is more potent when you use the sky clock or the earth clock rather than the Gregorian calendar. And that a big part of the reason why people don't believe in magic anymore is they've completely lost the connection to natural time and these natural cycles. And maybe this is like an observable clue, this lunar wave, that something about our atmosphere, this container, this little fishbowl we're in, it weakens or it ripples. And those are the moments when if we had a potent magical ritual, it would be most effective, perhaps. Yeah, I've actually seen experience real magic firsthand. I've done a video on it, but it wasn't me who was suffering from a curse, but my great uncle, he actually passed away from a curse. Hmm. And we found out later with the help of a gypsy woman sage that we found. Yeah, uh, excuse me, but that's how we call Roma people here. All good. All good. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we actually live nearby. We had a lot of friends there. And it's actually what, thankfully, my grandmother, she was a close friend with uh, the sage diviner, let's say. And the diviner owed her a favor and she came to our house and she didn't even enter the door. And she was like, this is scary. This is something real happening here. And she just told us, turn around all the pots, the flower pots in the house. And we did, and we found a bundle of some very strange things. They're like eggs, straw, here, and the bundle. It was in the room of my great uncle, and we brought it to her. She said, oh, this is a very powerful magic. It's done at the exact same time that it should have been done to be so powerful. I cannot break it. He will die. And he passed away the very same night. And I've heard stories like this from my father and from my grandfather. And initially, I, I never believed this stuff. I was always very skeptic. I was like living in a material world and science, trusting in science. But when you see something like this, it changes you. And when you know, if you've played computer games and you, let's say, know that there are hidden cheat codes in these computer games, you write something or you do something strange in the game itself and it alters the reality altogether. For example, you have to do something very weird that 
nobody would expect from you, and it's going to influence the whole world. Magic works the same way. You pick a coffin from the graveyard, you put it in uh, water and uh, acid or something, mix it with some hair, and just wait for the exact timing in the celestial objects. And you can kill someone like this if you know what you're doing. And I've dived into grimoires, dark magic grimoires to study it, not because I want to practice it, but because I had some crazy experiences. And yeah, what you're saying about this list of objects, I'm not a fan of astrology, although I'm sure it works, but I'm not a fan of it because nowadays you would see people on the internet spreading a lot of false information as of, let's say you're a lion or a cancer and that would be your fate and they send these horoscopes that would uh, influence you and it's much much more difficult to predict events based on there's a lot of maths into it for sure i haven't looked into it that much but in alchemy as well every day of the week is connected to a planet to a celestial object every hour as well every plant every color i can actually show you something right give me a sec this is clearly going to be one of the video clips. So I know that the listeners cannot see it. I would describe it, but I painted this one. Looks like a seal. So my father is actually a painter, and I've done some painting myself before. But this is one of the keys of Solomon. And if you read the Lesser Key of Solomon, which is the code book that many hidden societies praise, there's a lot of knowledge into it, how to manipulate energies, subtle energies. And these pentacles, these seals of Solomon, in order for it to be effective, it has to be a specific car. It has to be done in a specific hour of a specific day, depending on which one you want to do. And otherwise, it doesn't hold that much power. Whether I believe in it, I'm not sure, but I think it works. I'll tell you why. Because even if it doesn't work by itself, you know how placebo works in medicine. Our minds can do wonders. You can give a cancer patient some miracle pill. If they believe it's a miracle pill, they can go into remission. And we've seen this study. And if you make yourself believe in something and you do it, and the more you study something, you can actually manifest things with your mind that way. Let's say you manifest health through this pentacle or this one in case, this is for uh, home protection. But if you believe in it, it could happen. And I'm not saying anything you believe in would happen, of course, but there's a connection between all of these things. I've been reading some books on meditation and the autobiography of a yoga, Yogananda's book, and he was explaining there how if you don't believe in astrology, that doesn't mean it wouldn't affect you. But if you believe in it, if you study it, it could actually have some impact on your life, some positive impact on your life. I'm not there yet, but I will dive into it at some point. I've seen enough in that realm to be a believer, but I just think that the minds, there are magicians, occultists who have written books like Lone Milo Duquette. It's all inside your head. You just have no idea how big your head is. That's a weird wordy title for a book. But the point is that consciousness is the primary thing. So there's all this kind of fluid play between consciousness and physical reality and things like the placebo effect or magic and belief, the universe will sort of adjust to your consciousness or your universe, your 
observation. You're speaking about, have you read the Reality Transurfing book? Reality Transurfing. I'm familiar with it, but it's not totally fresh in my mind. I totally recommend it to you. It's absolutely about this topic. And I'm going to do a video on it soon. I just haven't finished the last volume. There are five volumes. But I've done a lot of exploring on consciousness. I've done the gateway tapes. I've also done a lot of psychedelics and deep meditation. I've reached very altered states of consciousness. And I've been fortunate enough to experience both forms of, let's say, I don't want to call it an enlightened state because nobody can really define this. But I would say it's a state where you feel absolutely connected to anything else. And there are two states you can reach in your consciousness like that, especially through meditation or psychedelics. One of the states is when you feel as if you've become the whole universe and you feel everything else. And you forget that your body exists. And actually for a few moments or a few hours, you're out of your body completely, but you're completely conscious at the same time, more conscious than you've ever been during your entire life. And the other one is very scary. The other experience is very scary because your consciousness gets put back somewhere behind you and you can no longer control your body. And the entire universe goes into your body as if possessing you. And it starts exploring. You can feel what the universe feels when it's inside you, but you cannot act. You become the observer. Usually the universe is the observer and you're the one acting. You're the main protagonist in your story, in your universe, right? And the universe is just observing you, giving you these directions, helping you or giving you some misfortunate events to build your character, your arc, let's say your hero protagonist arc. But when this happens, you become the observer and the universe goes into your place, into your shoes, and you feel like a child. She feels like a child when she's inside you starts touching the furniture. Oh, wow, this is amazing feeling that first half. Really? Because when you think, yeah, because when you think about it, you yourself are your universe. You have billions, trillions, quadrillions, even I don't know how many cells in your body. Each cell is doing something on its own. You're not controlling those cells. You're not controlling even your organs. You're not controlling your heart. You cannot stop it. But when you even explore further, you have cells in your body that do their own thing. They have their own lives. Do they have consciousness? Maybe, because they eat, they grow, they die. They replace each other. They form clusters. They form systems. They work together to achieve common goals. And within them, there are even other systems. So maybe like we exist in this universe, our cells exist the same way in us. Or let's say vice versa. We exist like cells in the universe because the universe itself cannot explore itself. Can you explore yourself through these cells? No, they have to do it for you. So when you pinch with a needle your arm, the cells feel it, and eventually through your nerves, your brain receives that and is alerted that it hurts. And maybe the universe needs us to feel because if we don't exist, we don't perceive it at the minor level, she would never be able to perceive what is happening down here because it's so vast, it's so vast that it wouldn't know what's going on. And during one of my psychedelic experiences, one of the strongest ones, I took nine grams of mushrooms. Ooh, that's a lot. 
Yeah, and uh, <laughs> but that was very well prepared. I, I've done it before, not with nine grams, but I prepared the room. I prepared special music for me, dimmed out the lights, lit some candles, meditated before that, hadn't eaten anything, cleaned before that, took a bath, dancing rituals and everything. Because I know it's a journey and you have to take it seriously if you want to get a good effect out of it. Uh, it should be like a form of an old code ritual, let's say. Regardless of what you believe in it, it's something like that. If you want to explore your consciousness, you should take it seriously. And I did all of that and my journey started. And at some point, I was not in my body anymore. I was traveling through the universe. And for a moment, I became a planet. And at this point, I don't know if you felt when the ego breaks down, what that feeling is. But when it breaks down, you feel an immense joy throughout your whole body as if thousands of orgasms go through your cells, through your spirit, through your soul. And at that point, I realized the universe created the ego. I read extensive philosophy on Kant, Freud, Freud, well, psychoanalysis, but Kant especially studies, and Carl Jung as well. Carl Jung studies the ego, but whatever I've read, I've read thousands of pages on these topics. I never really understood what the ego is. You can hear someone has a big ego and you think that's an insult, or you can hear someone is egotistical, but a person does not really understand through reading what an ego is until they really feel what it is to destroy that ego for a moment. Because when you destroy the ego for a moment, you feel everything is connected. And you start to realize what our existence means and why we are here. And in this moment, the universe practically told me, I've created the ego. I've created the ego because I was afraid to be alone. And imagine if different types of consciousness didn't exist, separated. We all are one consciousness but we're divided in, let's say, pockets. These pockets are formed through the egos of individual individuals, let's say, humans. Not only humans, everything that is alive holds some form of an ego. Aside from plants, I believe plants don't have an ego. And that's because during one of my trips, I asked the question, how do plants feel? Why do they grow? Because in a previous trip of mine, I had, I had this experience where I was asking questions to the subconscious, to the collective unconscious. And one of the questions was, if everyone can access it eventually, the Akashic Records, the collective unconscious, call it as you want. If you can access limitless information through meditation and through losing your ego, then if the information itself is limited and if the universe knows everything, then one person can become almighty, right? Yeah. Why hasn't that happened? Why is not one person ruling everything? And the universe practically told me, I don't know anything. I've forgotten everything. I do it automatically like your heart pumps. Your heart is pumping, but you don't know how it's going on. And it's just happening. And then I realized it's us humans that want to put everything in laws. We want to describe absolutely everything with mathematics, with uh, laws of physics. The universe itself, it's simply functioning. And it knows how to do it. And the second something happens, it forgets about it because the only thing that exists is the present moment. Like we're saying, time isn't linear. It's not linear at all. And to the universe, time doesn't exist because it's all at once. And every single moment has its own memory, but every other moment doesn't have access to this memory. 
And that's why from this present moment, you cannot access limitless information, even though some geniuses might have tapped into something, like let's say Einstein during his lucid dreaming experiences or Tesla, but he also didn't have access to absolutely everything, obviously. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Really, really interesting stuff, man. And we also have to talk about alchemy. You did a great video on that. An information-rich crash course into the real deep end for people who want to check it out. And it's about a lot more than just lead into gold. But on that theme, you say gold was transmuted from mercury in 1924, 1941, 1960, and 1980 by Myth and Seaboard. But it was too expensive to be worth it. And also, in 1404, King Henry IV of England declared an act that made gold-making a crime against the crown, which is interesting and kind of suggests that it was a real thing. But the video is actually titled How Alchemists Attained Eternal Youth. Elaborate on that. Oh, yeah. Well, I've always had an interest in alchemy, and I've tried some stuff myself. But what interested me most is this... Herb Melissa, that the people in these records I found. I also browsed a lot of forums online with people doing experiments with it, but I don't remember what I was citing exactly in the video. I have it in my papers here. But what I read about was this person, the alchemist, who created a potion out of it. And this potion would make a person lose his teeth, lose his hair. And after a couple of weeks the thief would come back brand new <laughs> and the hair would come up as well and this extract it's an ends extract in alchemy and the person who did that tested this on the hand in the beginning and the hand lost all its feathers and after a couple of weeks it regained them back so he decided to test it on a housewife in the mansion he was living in the castle and he poured one small drop into the wine of this housewife every day. And in two weeks, three weeks, she would regain her menstrual cycle. She was actually menopause. At right, that she point. was 70 years old. And also just with the hen, the hen started laying eggs again too. Not only did it yeah, get its feathers, yeah. so this vitality would come back. Well, I have never tested this one. I'm not that old, but when I get old, for sure, I'm going to try it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a video on it to get removed from YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that was really interesting. I, too, am fascinated with alchemy and just all the things that have been written. I like this quote from Fulcanelli that you included, and apparently his identity is a bit of a mystery, too. But he said, the secret of alchemy is this. There is a way to manipulate matter and energy to create what modern scientists call a force field. This field acts on the observer and puts him in a privileged position in relation to the universe. From this position, he has access to realities normally hidden from us by time, space, matter, and energy. This is what we call the great work. And I just love that. It jives with a lot of the stuff we have talked about, about consciousness and altered states and expanded consciousness. These are the sort of things like, are you really changing physical reality or is physical reality a manifestation from within anyway? Oh, for sure. I, I deeply believe that this is the distinction between materialism and idealists. And 
materialists believe it was physical reality that first came into place and after consciousness followed. But this makes absolutely no sense. If consciousness is what comes in first, I have another video that speaks about this and it's related to addictions. And if you want to change something in yourself, if you want to stop smoking, you shouldn't just try and stop smoking and that's it. This smoking stems from something deep within your energy and within your character that stems from your energy. You need to change something in your energy to change this behavior because it manifests energy into existence and it takes a physical form into your reality. So this is absolutely true. And it's the same thing I'm discovering now in the book I told you about, The Reality Transurfing. I actually found it out because, honestly, I check my affiliate links very often, what I post in my description. And Amazon tracks people, tracks my users as well, and tells me what they buy. <laughs> and in the Amazon affiliate program, I can see what people buy. And a lot of my viewers had bought this book, and I decided to take on it as well. And it did. Reality Transurfing is exactly this that you said. You can choose from various realities because of the theory that we have a multiverse, many universes, identical or different, and an endless way of possibilities that you can choose from. And if you can influence your energy in a way to change your material reality, then you can probably choose a different path in life that you've already chosen before or you're about to choose, depending on your view right now, your personal view. But there's many occult sciences that go about this. It's not alchemy only. Anything really you can think of, it all stems from the consciousness and from an energy field. Nothing changes materially first and energetically later. It's true. Even Aleister Crowley and his quest for accessing the Holy Guardian Angel, people who have been on that quest their whole lives still aren't sure if it's something separate or a deep, deep, deep part of the self. And it seems like no matter, as you say, which branch of esoteric science you're looking at, you'll die wondering, you know, was that truly separate or did something from inside of me emerge. So yeah, I think that stuff is just really, really interesting. And you even have a whole couple of videos about grimoires. And even though we're running out of time here, you have talked about the idea that what you read in some of these grimoires you think are part of the elite belief systems or the satanic cabal's belief systems. And be careful with that topic because you might get attacked. As soon as I published my video on Illuminati, I it got demonetized and uh, I received a warning from YouTube later on. So, And it's not something groundbreaking either. I shared many of these things you're, you're mentioning in now that you can find in remorse how for a spell to be effective for a curse or a ritual or a practice in general, you need to sacrifice something. And in most cases, it's a virgin child that is being torn to pieces and they use the skin as a parchment to write curses on. And Let's not go into detail about this because it's quite dark and blood magic as well, sacrifices. It's, it's very dark. Yes. Well, I just would say that you made the comment that it made you wonder where the 460,000 children who go missing in the U.S. actually go. And I, too, have the same curiosity. Man, that's shocking, actually. And what about the 15 million children that go missing globally each year? This is a lot more people than anyone could ever imagine. If you can see it mathematically, it's 
almost 1% of the country's children going missing every single year. 1%. This is an insane amount of people. <laughs> and it's children, too. And those are people on the record. You even talk a little bit about Oprah and the John of God saga, which is, you know, people know about that. But John of God, who she was promoting actually had a baby factory where he had women kind of chained up and he was making them birth babies. And then Epstein also apparently wanted to do such a thing. So these are just two examples. Who knows how many forced baby factories there might be in the dark underworld. So you're talking about babies that are counted. We might have a lot of uncounted babies. And uh, oh yeah. on that note, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I had a great time. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm kind of joking there, but as we are wrapping up, I did want to ask, are there other things that you plan to investigate next? Leave people with something. Uh, what's the plans for your channel going forward? Oh, I'm going to deep dive into MK Ultra now, and it's not the usual things you've heard before. It's actually, I'm going to explain how a certain sub-project of MK Ultra, sub-project 66, I believe it was, it changed altogether the whole project. and. It took MKUltra from influencing individuals, influencing the whole population of the United States, and hypnotizing them, changing the beliefs. You might have been a victim of MKUltra without knowing it. I probably was, because I'm deep in the pop culture, for sure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm going to explore this next. I'm also going to publish the video on the, the ancient town I told you about. And I'm going to do a mixture of psychedelics, uh, studying the consciousness, exploring the spiritual arts, esoteric as well, alchemy, um, visiting archaeological sites that there's something off there, that something has been concealed, or that there's a conspiracy behind them that's taken place. Generally, finding out the truth. And I try to be on the edge of not getting demonetized or kicked out of YouTube because you know how it is. But I will always share whatever people ask of me. If they ask something as a question after the video, what I truly believe, I will find a way to transfer my information to them without without costing too much for everyone. <laughs> because some topics are very sensitive, you know. That's true. That's true. But man, I have really enjoyed this. Hopefully we can do it again, maybe a year down the road when you have another collection of videos to discuss, but I just can't believe how good some of your videos are, yet they sit at under a thousand views officially. You know, who knows how many views something really has. We didn't even talk about chemtrails or fallen angels or lab-grown AI brains. So there is a lot on your channel for people to enjoy, including, you did mention this, but your Orgone Pyramid Experiment, which is really great to see in action because you see the rotten fruit and the not rotten fruit, just really great. So remind people where to find your stuff. Yeah, I'm Dank Susoko. That's with an X, X-U-I-S-O-K-O. And uh, you can find me at YouTube. You can just type Dank Susoko or at Susoko. You're going to find me there. And I'm always trying to be as close to the truth as possible. Sometimes I would tell about a conspiracy that I don't believe in and explore a story. And my beliefs will change midway. And you will see that in the video. 
but sometimes I will debunk their conspiracy if it's something that I don't really believe in. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It's true. It's just my belief. But I do thorough research. Sometimes, maybe for at least the half of my videos, I've read several books on whatever I am studying before I publish a video. I research for hours, sometimes for many days. The How Awards video took me at least several months to do. I was writing the script for two weeks straight every day to make a good script on it. And the research behind it was months. So whatever I go into, I'll try to discover as much as I can. I always try to discover things that have never been said before. Although sometimes I have to mention information that is publicly available because we have to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah. If we're not at least trying to do something new, what are we doing? So I'm right there with you. And I really appreciate people who go down these weird rabbit holes. And I love to highlight people who are maybe a little lesser known. So I think the audience is really going to love this. And of course, I will put the link in the show notes so they can just click there and go right to your YouTube channel. But um, yeah, man, either way, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. Take care and keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. We'll surely keep in touch. All right. Happy days are here again. There we go. That's the way we like it. An interview I very much enjoyed and expect most of you guys to have enjoyed as well. A most likely largely unknown and unexpected guest who can talk about a wide range of stuff. It is our bread and butter. And I certainly got a lot of feedback about people not loving the last episode, and I get that. I tried to make the best of it and go in directions I thought would keep it interesting, but it is what it is. Let me regurgitate what I said to members in the plus comments section. But if you were to go through the whole THC archive and pull out the most mediocre episodes, they're almost always the ones that come from me being too nice to say no thank you to either previous guests, people who ask me enough to wear me down, and or publishers that want to get the word out about a new book. Almost every time. In my head, sometimes when I see those emails come in, I think, well, this is going to be a challenge to make this one good. And in the moment, I feel up to that challenge. Like I get a little charged from seeing if I can put lipstick on the pig, as they say. And then the day of recording comes after reading the full book and digesting all the subsequent material. And often I feel like I should just pull out because I know it's weak. I've been doing this to myself for years and really should just stop because it hurts the consistency of the quality. I know what's good and what isn't. Maybe a booker would help create a little barrier there so it wouldn't be me having to say no. But I guess I'm just one of the few guys who doesn't want to outsource that. That's part of the fun to me is picking the guests. When it comes to the publishers, sometimes I feel like I have to accept an offer every so often so that that door stays open for the ones that I really want. And no publisher has ever stated that to me or anything, but it just feels like a good way to maintain those relationships. But all of that is just to say that I'm well aware when I'm putting out something that is just not that great. And at least you should take comfort in that awareness, I guess. 
and it usually motivates me to bounce back harder because a podcaster is only as good as his last show. And now we have a new last show, and I think it's pretty good. I mentioned that this was going to be all about his Hollow Earth documentary, and I'm glad it wasn't. It's better that we broadened it out, but I still appreciate that he tried to get into the deep details, work out the actual math, and see if it's a model that he could see being possible and syncing up with the descriptions that we have from various people who have claimed to have journeyed inside. And wouldn't you know, apparently it all checks out. I also just really like the narrative presented with those points plotted on the timeline. The military accidentally leaking the polar opening in 1957. Then in 1958, NASA was created to convince people to look up and out rather than down and in. And then just a year after that, 1959, the Antarctic Treaty was signed between all the major countries. And then, most importantly and quite curiously, that's also the year they added the Molten Core model to the standard national school curriculum? You know that speaks to me. And I have not heard these things put into context together. I've heard about them all separately, except maybe the Molten Core education system thing. But stringing them all together makes a fun argument. But in general, I had a great time. I'd like to keep Dan in the rotation. I think it would be super great to see if we can't get deeper into some material that often doesn't reach an English-speaking audience. I hadn't tried that hard to make it happen in the past, but we did have Sylvia Ivanoa help us with Alexander Coltipin. That was fun. And I hope this is another avenue to do more of it. Maybe Dan has some thoughts on Hattiebov or Viktor Rabinikov. I'm pretty damn sure there's just as much esoterica and high strangeness in the Russian subculture, maybe even some things in Bulgarian that don't usually get out, but I could see this being the start of a fun series. Even if we just talked about a bunch of abduction experiences or occult experiences that are big stories in those cultures but aren't in ours. Either way, I guess I'll be keeping an eye on the comment section to see if that's something you guys want. And I'll just cut you off at the pass here, but some people do complain. How come you only have a comment section for plus members and no place for free members to provide feedback? Well, it is my job, and the feedback of paid members means a lot more to me. Sorry to say, but if you stiff a waiter and then you want to talk his ear off about the meal, I'm sure he'd probably rather just move on with his day. Think about it like that. And also, not that I'm the biggest podcaster in the world, but I am at a level where there's just too much feedback in general. It's a good thing, but I can't let it influence me too much because I don't really know how many people a particular opinion represents. There's no guidebook for being in this position. But I at least know that I have a place where I don't even have to ask. I just know that if I log on to the website, the star ratings and the comments on the site are paid members, and I can try to bring them more of what they like and less of what they don't, which 90% of the time I can already predict because we've been doing this a long time and people tend to like what I like because that's how these things work. But to anyone else, free listeners, whoever, go forth and have fun. Make 
communities for THC if you want to. I endorse it all. There are several places to discuss THC with other listeners that are free. There's the unofficial Facebook group. There's a Telegram group. And there's a subreddit. There was a Discord, but it got banned. I can't do much about that. So if you feel like you want other people to talk to about these topics, I would advise you to go to those places I just mentioned. But when it comes to me personally, I don't think you should enjoy the show any less just because we don't have a one-on-one dialogue. I got kids now. I got a lot on my plate. I'm trying to bring you good shows. And that's really all I can keep up with. And I hope you understand. I know most people do. But I expect this one to be well-liked. As a fan of comedy podcasts, I do get bored quickly with these same 20 guys just going through a rotation and all just doing each other's shows over and over again. And yeah, sometimes a big name in our world has a new book out and we want to get our interview. But other times, I just like to make sure we highlight something you weren't aware of or weren't expecting. And maybe the material isn't 100% new, but it's a new person's perspective on it, at least. I mean, Dan captured the lunar wave. (laughs) That's kind of cool. He has a different take on what it might be, but he's pretty damn sure it isn't a trick of editing. It's a real thing, and I like that. I think calling him the Tim Ferriss of the alternative is fair, or even an alternative Mythbusters, because he does do experimentation. If their goal hadn't always been to just debunk shit and prop up the mainstream narrative, which it was. But anyway, if you even half like this, you really should comb through his YouTube channel and see some of the actual experiments he's done. I've always liked things like Orgone Pyramids and that sort of thing. But he proves there's an effect and you can watch it with your own eyes. I think we need more of that kind of stuff. So kudos to Dan for making himself that guy. Tell him you liked it if you did. The Plus Show got even wilder. We talked about the source field, what he learned from doing nine grams of mushrooms and a few of his other journeys into the abyss. We got into his exploration of the CIA's gateway tapes and the mind states he was able to achieve with them, like the Focus 21 state, which is quite wild, heightened psychic abilities, remote viewing, etc., etc. We talked about the case that Leonardo da Vinci had an abduction experience based on the changes in his work after a certain date. Loved that. Dan's also done a fair amount of research into alchemy, so we were able to talk about that kind of thing, and gold making, and achieving eternal youth, and some stories from the alchemical literature I wasn't aware of. All good stuff. I mean, if you like the first hour, the second is only wilder and deeper. Become a Plus member if it's worth it to you. I'm trying here. Plus members get five two-hour shows a month instead of just the free first hour. It's easy. Click the link at the top of the show notes. You can get access to the Plus show feed which you can use to listen on any of the same old podcasting apps. All the same stuff is true for the Patreon link, but you can also listen to Plus on Spotify because they are partners, and you can pay through PayPal, which some people complain about. 
Plus members also get 10% off in the merch store too. Check your email for the coupon code when you sign up. The artists I've worked with have made some amazing stuff. I saw a few people at Jim Gale's event this weekend wearing THC shirts. Thank you for that. Including the Hollow Earth shirt. Maybe my favorite one we've ever done. And that said, if you follow me on any of the normal social media platforms, you will find video clips from these episodes. I've started putting up a video clip from the free show and one from the plus show. So even if you aren't a plus member, you can get a little taste. Again, free and ad free. So I'm not all bad. And before we end this thing, let's talk about the upcoming events on the meetup calendar. November 14th, we have an event in Squim, Washington at the Oak Table Cafe. November 16th, the Montana Tap House in Whitefish, Montana. November 17th, Two Pitchers Brewing in Oakland, California. November 18th, Minglewood Brewery in Cape Girardeau. We are keeping these breweries open, and I love it. November 18th, the Chateau Lafayette in Ottawa, Ontario is hosting Higher Side Chatters. December 2nd, it's coming back around the monthly meetup at High Springs Brewing Company in High Springs, Florida. I met two of the guys from High Springs Brewing at the Jim Gale event. Cool guys. I appreciate that they are putting themselves out there to bring Higher Side Chatters in. And if you're anywhere near that area, I know it would be a good time. And then lastly, let me throw out December 3rd. There is an event in Mount Cotton, Australia. And that's all she wrote. Just go to HiresideMeetups.com to get more details about any of the events I mentioned. RSVP, because that's good manners. And or post an event of your own. With that, thanks again to Dan. And thanks for listening, guys. Take care. I've done my part. Your move, Hollow Earth Hiders, Lunar Wave Observers, and Dedicated Deep Diving Psychonauts. Your fucking move.